Take a deep breath. Relax. We are now in the more familiar territory called the, Old, the New Testament. You know, it's like coming back to your homeland after you've traveled outside the country for a while. And it's great for a while to eat different food and, and operate in a different language and work with different money. But there's something really comforting when you get back to familiar soil and home and everything you know. It puts us at ease. And much of the Old Testament is from unfamiliar territory to us. But the New Testament is all about Jesus. And we are Christians and we are the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've spent much more time centered in him and we're familiar with him and his teaching and his works and his life. And this morning we're going to take the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. We will do John next week because John is kind of the weird kid in the family. John's a little different. He does his own thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels, S-Y-N, sin, and then optic, like an optician, I, meaning the single I gospels, the synoptic gospels, because you can take Matthew and Mark and Luke and put them side by side and find many of the same events, many of the same words of Jesus. Sometimes those three gospels have things in all the same order. These first three Gospels share much in common. John is unique in his presentation of Jesus, so we'll do him separately next week. Well, what is a Gospel? Let's just start there. We know what the Gospel with a small g is. It is the good news of the life of Jesus Christ. It is about God's love for us, His forgiveness of our sins and our failures through Christ and how we have been reconciled to God through Jesus. But the gospel with a capital G is a particular type of writing, just like a letter is a particular form of writing or a poetry is a particular form of writing or a biography. A gospel really was invented by the Christians, really by Mark. He's the first one we think to ever write something called a gospel. And a gospel is good news about the life and the death and the resurrection Of the Lord Jesus Christ. To take it a little bit further, a gospel tells how Jesus brings the story of Israel to a climax. We've been paying attention to that story, haven't we? And how through Jesus, God creates a renewed people through whom God's plan to repossess the world for himself will come about. The gospels are first in the New Testament because you can't have a gospel with a small g until you get the gospel, the story, the facts with the big G. Our faith is Jesus-centered. We live on his words. We live on his life. We live in his story. Now, let me say what a gospel is not. A gospel is not a folktale because they retell. a gospel retells events that really happened. A gospel is not a biography. Um, There's a lot of Jesus' life that the gospel writers don't tell us about. Ancient accounts of a person's life didn't focus on a physical description of the person or their psychological and personal development like our modern-day biographies do. 
in the ancient days, in the Greco-Roman world that Jesus lived in, an account of someone's life would pay attention to the key events in that person's life and his teachings. And that was all they needed to, to know. Not a biography. A gospel is also not neutral. The writers of the gospels were deeply convinced that God was acting in Jesus and that he offers salvation from death and the darkness of this world by believing in him. And each writer has a particular slant on Jesus that they give to us. They take the words, they take the events of his life, and they really craft them together in a certain way so that people will know Jesus as the Son of God. They're not neutral about that. A gospel is written from a perspective of faith. It's not just narrative, it's proclamation. It is a story, but that story has a message. You know, we have stories in our day to entertain. That's why we have stories. The gospel writers had stories to give the good news. Their stories weren't to divert. Their stories were to convert. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't wake up one day and say, Gee, yeah, I think I'll write a gospel about Jesus. I, th- I just think I'll do that. Um, they weren't journalists writing as, as the life of Jesus happened. The gospels weren't even completed until 20, 40 years after Jesus was gone. What the gospel writers did is they took the preaching of the apostles and they took the eyewitness accounts of those who were there with Jesus and what was being shared week by week in the communities of faith, in the churches that were beginning, and they collected it and wrote it into documents so that it could be read, it could be heard by various Christian communities that were blossoming all over the ancient world. The Gospels are the only, the only firsthand, reliable eyewitness accounts we have of Jesus Christ. Yes, there were others who attempted to write Gospels in the name of the Apostles. Maybe you've heard of the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas. But they were rejected by the early church because of their lack of accuracy and their failure to be in line with what the eyewitnesses of Jesus knew to be true. The Gnostic Gospels were also written much, much later than the documents and the Gospels of the New Testament. Let me just do a brief synopsis of the first three synoptic Gospels. And the first Gospel is Matthew in the old order of the Old of the New Testament books. We've been in the Old Testament so long, I'm confused. I don't know whether I'm talking about the new or the old anymore. Now, we believe, with good reason, I can't go into the details, but we believe Mark was the first gospel. Mark was the first gospel written. So why is Matthew the first gospel in the order of the New Testament? Well, because, first of all, when the New Testament books were put in order, obviously they put the story of Jesus, the gospels, first. But Matthew was first because Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because the story of Jesus doesn't begin with Jesus. It begins with Abraham and David and all those Hebrew saints and Gentile saints of that time, which is why, which is what Matthew's genealogy is all about. And the way Matthew begins, it's a natural bridge connecting the Old Testament now to the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is a fulfillment of the story of Israel. Oh, that's why we've been spending seven months on all that stuff. The Old Testament, yes. 
Matthew's the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Probably written for a community of Christians who were Jewish. Remember, many of the first believers were Jewish. And, and they broke from Judaism, not because they wanted to, but because eventually they had to, because of their convictions in Christ. Matthew focuses, more than any gospel writer, on Jesus' relationship to Israel and Israel's rejection of him. He quotes more scriptures from the Old Testament. He quotes the Old Testament prophets. There's an emphasis in Matthew on righteousness, which is a huge Old Testament concept. And Matthew pays much more attention to the fulfillment of the Jewish law. There are five major sections of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. Five major sections, maybe to parallel those first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, maybe. Well, the first section of Jesus' teaching in Matthew is found in Matthew 5 through 7, and we know it as the Sermon on the Mount. That's probably the most well-known teaching of Jesus, and even people who aren't real familiar with the Bible or Christian faith would, would know the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, which we read, which we heard this morning. We also heard what comes at the very end of Matthew's gospel, what came to be known as the Great Commission. When Jesus, the risen Lord, sends his disciples out into the world to to make more disciples, and he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them everything I have commanded you. Teach them to obey it. Matthew's gospel in the first centuries of the church, in all the ancient documents, the sermons, the commentaries we have, is quoted more than any other gospel. It was probably the the most read, probably circulated the best. Mark is the shortest gospel and the second gospel in the order. And he begins his gospel by laying out right at the beginning. He says, I'm telling you that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And this good news, you read it, it begins in a desert near water, the Jordan River, which is to stoke in people's mind when God formed another people in the desert through water in the Exodus. Lots of action in Mark. If you like action movies, Mark's your gospel. He is the ADHD gospel. It just, the word immediately just goes boom, boom, immediately this happens, boom, immediately this happens. It is just all action, time and time again. Fewer words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. He pays attention to the actions. 20 miracles of Jesus he gives us. Mark was not an apostle. He was not an eyewitness. So if the gospels are eyewitness accounts, what's the deal with Mark? Well, Mark, we're told by an early Christian historian whose name was Eusebius, interviewed Peter and got all his information from Peter and basically wrote what Peter said about his eyewitness of Jesus and and put it together in his gospel. And you will note as you read Mark, there's a much larger emphasis on Peter than anybody else except Jesus, of course. The suffering of Jesus as the Son of Man is highlighted in Mark. The message in Mark is that unless you understand that Jesus had to suffer, And unless you understand the role of suffering in our lives as disciples, and then you can't understand Jesus' call. You can't understand his role as the Son of God. And the hinge text of his whole gospel is in chapter 8, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And then he says to them, who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who's the first one to say out loud, 
You are the Christ. It's then that Jesus reveals he must undergo great suffering, be rejected, and be killed. And now Peter, the same Peter, gets rebuked by Jesus for, he rebukes Jesus for talking like that, and he can't accept that Jesus, as the Christ, has to suffer. Everything in Mark builds to the cross and the resurrection. Most of Mark, if you read it, is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And the ending of Mark is interesting. Our Bibles often have it in a footnote or in italics or it's set apart as the second ending of Mark. And uh, it's widely thought this ending was not the original ending of Mark, but was added by a later writer because it doesn't appear for hundreds of years in any of the earliest copies we have of Mark. Well, why would this ending be added? Because Mark's final sentence in verse 8 of chapter 16 ends with the women at the empty tomb fleeing in fear, and they're afraid, and that's it. And some well-meaning Christians, worshiping, believing Christians say, Man, that's a terrible ending to the story. In fear? And so someone wrote that in, and it got copied and, and perpetrated. And that's why our Bible set that apart. Perhaps we don't know why Mark ended his gospel with the women in fear. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe he was arrested. The authorities came and got him right when he was at that part in his gospel. We can only surmise. We don't know. The third gospel is Luke. He's the only Gentile, that is, non-Jewish writer of the whole New Testament. And he was not an apostle. So how does he count as an eyewitness? Well, Luke hung out with the apostle Paul and was on several of his missionary journeys. Luke was a physician. He was very educated. He was a historian. Luke is a good writer. It shows, his, his, his language in his writing shows he has culture. He was familiar with classical prose. To contrast Mark, who was a fisherman, and Greek scholars will tell you it's really poorly written, the language and the syntax. Mark isn't very well written, but Luke is written re- really well. As a matter of fact, when I had to study biblical Greek in preparation for my seminary studies, I studied first with a Roman Catholic priest, who had us read and translate Luke because he said it is so good. Now, that didn't make a difference for me because I was terrible in Greek. I still am, but nevertheless. Luke opens his gospel, which was personally written for someone named Theophilus. Luke opens by telling this, his reader, that many others, they've tried their hand at, at, at putting together the story of Jesus And using reports handed down from original eyewitnesses who served the word with their very lives. And Luke claims to have investigated every detail. And he says that he's written accounts so that Theophilus, his reader, will know the truth about all these events. So Luke is totally built on eyewitnesses. Luke is the longest gospel. And he gives us material the other gospel writers don't give us. Luke gives us the, more extensive, the most extensive account of the birth of Jesus and the, uh, what we have of the early life of Jesus, which we often hear read at Christmas, don't we? In Luke, we get more parables of Jesus, and, and he gives us what other gospel writers don't give. He gives us the parable of the Good Samaritan. He gives us the parable of the prodigal, of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and a couple of others that you don't find anywhere else. Luke emphasizes Jesus as the Savior showing 
compassion to the needy. And Jesus is going to the outcasts and he's helping the despised. We read more about women. We, we read more about Samaritans and Gentiles in Luke than any other gospel. And this, these were groups of people who were not thought highly of in Judaism. Luke wants everybody to be saved. And it isn't that everyone will be saved, according to Luke, but Luke says anybody can be saved. Jesus is wide open to anyone who would come to him. Samaritans, come. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, you come. Dying thief on the cross in your last breath, you come. And that's the way it is with Jesus. That's part of the gospel. It doesn't matter how much of a mess we've made with our lives. It doesn't matter how far we think we are from Jesus right now. He is always welcome to receive us. Now, unlike Matthew, who's probably writing to a Jewish community, Luke is writing to a Gentile community. Makes sense, given that he was not Jewish, so he has fewer prophecies, fewer quotes from the Old Testament, less imagery from Judaism. Jesus is called Master instead of Rabbi, which, of course, is the title of a Jewish teacher. The Holy Spirit is big in Luke. Luke is our charismatic gospel writer. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit is big and operative in the book of Acts as well. The early Christians placed Acts after the gospel, even though Acts is Luke part two. They did it because it's a natural bridge between the story of Jesus and then the letters of Paul, what comes after Jesus. Well, so that's our first three gospels. Can we trust the gospels? Can we trust them? They were written a long time ago. Jim Edwards writes in his book called, Is Jesus the Only Savior? That one of the most important quality control factors over the Gospels was the fact that the eyewitnesses were still alive when the Gospels were being compiled and circulated and read to the churches. And these eyewitnesses functioned as gatekeepers, as custodians of what Jude, in his New Testament later, letter, later calls the faith that was once and for all trusted to the saints. The writers would have been called out by the eyewitnesses if there was a problem. A second reason I think we can trust the Gospels is that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who, like any rabbi, would demand the highest degree of listening and reciting from his disciples. In rabbinic tradition, students had to memorize, they had to recite, they had to repeat their rabbi's teacher with absolute accuracy. So what was handed on in the Gospels would be incredibly accurate. And then a third factor for trust in the Gospels is that it includes stuff that doesn't show the disciples in a very favorable light. You read the Gospels and the disciples are slow and they make mistakes and they don't get it. And one, they're cowards to the point one betrays Jesus, another one denies him. The Gospels are not cleaned up and they're not packaged to sell people some story without its problems. Now, a made-up story would get rid of all those blemishes. Those are just a few reasons I think the Gospels can be trusted. Why do we have four Gospels? You ever think about that? And different, four different accounts of the life of Jesus. 
hey, let's appreciate the fact that the early church did not combine these Gospels into one harmonized account. You know, some tried to do that in hopes of, you know, getting rid of the differences and the details in the Gospels. For example, if you read the resurrection accounts in all four Gospels, there are differences about what was actually seen at the empty tomb. That the tomb was empty, that Jesus was seen and resurrected in the body is consistent in all four Gospels. But there are differences in the details. And the early Christians resisted trying to clean all that up. The early Christians wanted that different and unique story and account of Jesus to stand in each of those four accounts, communicating the story in new ways to different audiences, respecting the concerns of the different communities that they were written for. The same story told, retold, never in quite the same way. The early Christians stood with four different accounts, four different takes on the life of our Lord, four unique stories, all unified in the gospel message that God was being revealed in this one man who we see, hear, and know God. The only thing they insisted on was that the gospels be accurate, reliable, and true to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. What does it matter to know and to read the Gospels? Well, the most obvious answer is that if we're going to follow and worship Jesus Christ, we need to know who we're following and who we're worshiping and what his message really was. The Gospels are the only place we know what Jesus said, what he did, what he claimed. If someone is going to question Jesus, if someone is going to disagree with Jesus, if someone is going to mess with Jesus, it had better be done on the basis of the eyewitness accounts. And we can't live for Christ. We can't live the true Christian life without knowing Jesus, knowing about him. You want to hear Jesus? You want to see Jesus? You want to encounter Jesus? You want to get clear on Jesus? Don't go to Barnes and Noble and find the latest book that some fool person wrote. Read the Gospels. And then reread them. And soak in them and meditate in them. Because the Gospels are written for us. They're written to us. They're written so that we can encounter and know Jesus. And that is why the four writers took such pains to get the story right. Joel Green is a New Testament professor. He's now the uh, dean of the School of Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Melissa Doloff, Jen Christensen, uh, two of our uh, people in this community, both graduated from there. He wrote a book called How to Read the Gospels and the Book of Acts. How to Read the Gospels. And I want to close with something that he said. He said in the four Gospels, God himself openly declares his solidarity with men and women. Indeed, with all creation in an unprecedented way. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and he becomes as we are, lives among us, rejoices and suffers with us. All of this he does with us and for us, for our salvation. In the Gospels, the message of redemption doesn't appear as an ivory tower philosophy. Good news is not presented as a set of ideas or a list of propositions. The good news of God breathes, it walks, it talks in a man, 
Jesus of Nazareth. Here God intervenes in real, this worldly history. Here is a marvelous story full of life and vitality to which men and women across the centuries have been drawn again and again. May God bless your reading of the Gospels your whole life long. Let's pray.